Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Candy Johnson. Candy is the president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Chattanooga. Candy's journey started in Clarksville, Tennessee, and includes a variety of leadership roles. Fortunately for Chattanooga, her path has led her here to the scenic city. Candy, welcome to my morning cup. Before we talk about your career path and how you were elected at 25 years old to the Clarksville City Council, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? I have coffee from your Keurig. Some Costa coffee, and I have to uh, be truthful. It took me a while to get that cup made, didn't it? <laughs> you know, we want everything to go fast, but it worked itself in its timing, the right timing, the perfect timing. We had a nice cup. Well, thank you. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. You've been in town since 2017. Is that correct? Yeah. Wow, six years. Did you ever imagine being here since I did. I thought it would be like four years. Yeah. We're still here. <laughs> well, it's good. You, both uh, you and your husband have been a blessing to the community, and it's very important to have you here. So you grew up in Clarksville, Tennessee. Let's talk about that a little bit. What was Clarksville like to grow up? Tennessee's top spot. Tennessee's top spot. That was our tagline. Really? So Clarksville is a unique place. You know, I've traveled and worked in different cities since growing up in Clarksville and going to college there. But Clarksville's advantage is its military town. Yeah, it's where the base right? is. And so when you talk about, like in my work, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. It's just kind of natural. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it was perfect. But in my neighborhood, not where I grew up, but where I lived before moving to Chattanooga, it was very diverse. So Indian neighbors, Asian, black, white, that was the norm. And you credit that more to the base than... I would say military. Yeah. You know, we had about 30, 30% of the students in the public school district were from military families. Like they didn't go to school on the base. And so, of course, people are going to live off the base yeah. as well because they don't have enough housing. So I grew up in that environment where diversity was just there and we didn't have to try to, you know, seek it or bring it to the table. So were you born in Clarksville? Born and raised. Born and raised. My entire family. My grandfather was a farmer a police officer, retired police officer, a restaurant owner. Wow. Um, actually, his restaurant, Virginia's Cafe, is in the Green Book. Really? Um, as a place that African-Americans could visit. And explain what the Green Book is for those who either don't know or hadn't seen the movie. In short, it's a safe space during that time period for African-Americans when they were traveling to be able to eat. Because during that time in the 60s, you know, there were still, you know, segregation where you couldn't go. You could Potentially go, but, you know, using different entrances and all those sort of things. So their tagline was, we doze, but we don't close. So there were 24 <laughs> hours. I and mean, his name was Big Otis. Big um, Otis. A great man in stature and was very involved in the community and well-respected along with my grandmother. So he was a restaurateur, a police officer, and World a World War II veteran. World War II veteran. And we had a farm, but they ended up selling the farm. My grandmother's, when he passed away, she said, there's too many cottonmouth snakes on that <laughs> farm, and nobody wants to deal with that. And so when he passed away, she sold the farm. What kind of farming? Just crop, like vegetables. I was not born. Um, I never got to meet my grandfather, oh. but heard all the great stories and saw lots of pictures. Sounds like an interesting guy. 
Yeah, I wish I could have met him, but I feel like he lives in me, you know, my drive. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about that drive. You grew up in Clarksville, went to high school there. You're a senior in high school. What do you think you want to do when you get out besides go to college? What was your career aspiration? Yeah, I had a non-traditional path, so I wasn't the best student. Join the club. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us who end up talking a lot, right, for a living. And that's we why probably, we weren't good students right. either. <laughs> I always had my card flipped in third grade for talking too much. <laughs> now I get paid for it. But about 10th grade, I was having some challenges, and my mother said, we're going to homeschool you. And I was like, homeschool? 10th grade? So I homeschooled from 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. So was that a bit unusual or unique at that time before homeschooling really took hold? Very unusual. I mean, you didn't have these groups where like you could engage and go get your PE, you know, or go to the university. It was primarily online with CD-ROMs. So I missed out a lot on the academic rigor that I needed to be able to go to college. So when you think about career paths, at that age, I just thought I would be a famous supermodel. I mean, and I did model. I went, I won Miss Barberzon in 1994. All right. So I did have a short modeling career. And then my senior year, I um, got pregnant. And so thinking about career, I think that was when I woke up and said, okay, I'm going to go to college. But from that point, my mother wasn't a college graduate. My siblings had gone, but they had quit. Mm -hmm. um, I was the baby of the family. So I didn't really have that kind of visual Outside of living maybe a 10-minute walk from Austin Peay State University, that was my visual of college, so I knew it was there. But, but you I, had no one in the family you could look to who had experienced not that. at that time. Yeah. yeah. My mother later went back and she got a PhD and went to Vanderbilt. Wow. Divinity School and all that. But that was after yeah. you know, I graduated college. So I thought the modeling career would be it. And got a rejection letter from Austin Peay. When I applied, I said, you have not been admitted because at 18, I'm like graduating, getting ready to finish high school, getting ready to have a baby. And something clicked and said, you got to go to college. Like you got to, you know, make a good life right. for your daughter. And I was unmarried, unwed at that time. And so what I ended up doing, I, I had a reality check because I had always won everything. Like I was homecoming queen in ninth grade and had won best all around in eighth grade, had won you know, miscongeniality. And at that moment, I felt like I wasn't winning. I had been rejected. That's hard. Because I'm sure you expected the letter to say, welcome to Austin P. We yes. can't wait to see you. And I was, I grew up yes. next to Austin P. Yeah. So why wouldn't they let me, you know, attend? But it was based on, again, when I talk about that academic rigor, you know, my ACT score was low. I didn't have two years of foreign language. You know, mm -hmm. all, those, all things those things that your high school counselor is going to make sure you have. I didn't have a high school counselor. So what did that do to you at that point? You're getting, for lack of a better term, rejected for the first time. It made me never settle for no. So I think, you know, and that started younger, but I think yeah. at this point it was really difficult. solidified it. It solidified it. And so I wrote a letter to the university and I just talked about kind of my past and, you know, becoming a new mom. And I do remember, I don't remember the exact letter, but I did say, I will make you proud one day. And I ended up working at Austin P after I graduated. Oh, that's great. So I graduated, was very involved, student government association. I was on the homecoming court, did a sorority. And all this time you're a single mom too. Oh yeah. 
Talk about how you had to juggle that in college, because so many people go to college in the first year or two is letting their hair down and having fun. But you likely went into it with a much different focus. I did let my hair down and have fun. (laughs) I will credit that to a great support system. And I think that's my difference, because a lot of times we see single moms and say, well, if Candy did it like that single mom can do it. But I don't think that's necessarily true when you don't have a support system. Mm -hmm. So my mother, mind you, I grew up near the university. She still lived there next door to my grandmother. And so when I had class, I did night classes initially because with Austin P they have the military campus. And so they had accelerated class. So for my first year, I did the Fort Campbell campus, which were accelerated and night classes. So I worked during the day and my daughter was kept by my family as a newborn. And then when she became a toddler, Austin P had a childcare facility. So at two years old, she was able to go oh, that's great. to the child care. So support system. But you still had those off hours, you know, where you're a mom and a mom's a 24 seven. And she, I lived on campus in family housing. And so she was the Austin P baby. So like everyone knew her sorority sisters would babysit boyfriend who I'm now married to. He would help out. That was later on. And so that's, I think, why she didn't choose to go to Austin because she already knew the whole campus. She already knew everybody. She was like, I don't want to go there. But makes sense. it was a challenge. I worked two jobs in college. I worked at a bank as a teller from two to six, whenever that window closed. And then I also worked at a restaurant as a hostess. So it was a lot. Yeah, you had a lot going on. And you graduate from Austin P. And before we get on to going to Murray State and getting your master's, I got to ask the question. Who came up with the Austin P. cheer? Let's Let's go go P. (laughs) See, I think, and it's changed now. It's be a gov. Oh, really? It's be a gov. You got to go with that. You know, back when my mother did go to Austin P. for like a year before she did, you know, she didn't complete at that time, but. Back in her day, they had a pretty well-known basketball player there named Fly Williams. I remember that name. You remember that name? Yeah, absolutely. And so they used to say, unzip the fly, let's go pee. (laughs) So, you know, along the way, when I was in school, it was called let's go pee. And then we had some signs that said, show your pee nuts. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So so some president, it could have been Sherry Hoppy, it could have been President Hall, May have had some yeah. issues with that and said, hey, we're going to change it a this. bit. But people, we still shall. Let's go, Pete. What a great college tier. Absolutely. And I will say on the, the college front, you know, that last semester of college, I remember having 21 hours. And at this point, I was working 30 hours at the bank. Still very involved in SGA. Was a governor's ambassador for the president. So when they had special tours, I was one of those students. It was like a blur. It was like I was just going. And so I think I've lived at that pace. So you kind of put your head down and just kept going. Kept going. I didn't never look back because I had that goal, right? And that was to make a better life for my daughter. And we know the value of a college education. Although I think today we're placing less value on that. But if you look at the data and understand your earnings potential and understand your career trajectory and opportunities, I still think there is a, a place and a need. Uh, I would agree with you. And you took it a bit further than that. You went on and got a, a master's in public administration from Murray State. Yeah. I got married after I graduated and I was going to go to law school. And so I had filled out my LSAT information, took the test. I didn't score very high. I'm not a great test taker. And so I only got accepted to two schools 
one was in Memphis and then one would have been in like a local Nashville mm-hmm. school. And so at that time I was like, you know, I'll just get my master's since the MPA is like the second highest, you know, mm-hmm. degree in, in government or law. And I never wanted it to practice law. I wanted it for advocacy. And so I went to Murray State. And of course, as a graduate student, you're going on weekends yeah, and on like Thursday nights. And so that was a drive. How far was that from Clarksville? May have been like two hours. Wow. Yeah. So I would spend like all day Saturdays. And then I think we had like a Thursday night class, but pushed through it. Did well, both in undergraduate you know, GPA-wise and in graduate school. So I ran for city council my last semester of graduate school. That's what I was going to ask you about. Elected to city council at 25 years old. Yeah. I read a book called Unlimited Power by Tony Robbins. That book, I mean, of course, the Bible, too. It really changed my way of thinking about why not, like why wait, because I would go around to talk to people about my interest in that. And they were like, oh, you need a little more time, sweetheart, or you should wait, or you should do this. But I had already, even in college through my internship, had helped to create what was called Room in the Inn for the Homeless. Mm-hmm. Like that was one of my my projects. And it's still there today to help to house the homeless during the winter months. So Room in the Inn is here. It was in Nashville. And so I was already serving in the community, volunteering and had started a student chapter for the homeless division. So I felt like, what more do I need to do to serve my community? Yeah. So I did it. I read that book. It was kind of connected biblically, too, even though it didn't talk about the Bible. It was the same principle. Same lessons and principles. Yeah, it's like faith, self-belief. And so I've just kind of walked with that throughout life. You know, it's interesting you bring out the why wait, because I think my generation, and I'm a tail end of the boomers, is very much a, there's a process and you respect authority, yeah. and you wait your turn, and you do that. And I think one of the advantages to younger generations today is the why wait, because I can look back and go, well, you really didn't need to do that steps or wait. Get involved. Do it. And I can respect the boomer. I feel like a boomer sometimes. Well, a lot of times. <laughs> oh, you're too but... young to be a boomer. <laughs> but we'll make you an honorary one. <laughs> yes. But I do think there still is a process. But I think since I had already been involved in volunteering in my community and serving, that was my why wait concept. Now, I think coming fresh out of college and not getting those experiences to help you have a better understanding, maybe there is some part of a process. Yeah. But in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm already showing up at community meetings. I'm already very involved. I had interned in the mayor's office in college. That was part of my 21 hours. So the council members probably already knew you. The administration knew you, obviously. This was a different administration because now they had a new mayor by the time I finished graduate school. But you were probably known around the city hall. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, everybody knew my grandmother. She was the civil rights leader. So You mentioned that your grandmother was a great influence. You talk about your grandmother's history. Yeah, so my grandmother, I hate to say this, but I mean, it's the truth, and I'm kind of living out her legacy, right? She was the grassroots civil rights leader, like is going to have picket signs, going to have sit-ins at the mayor's office, all about justice, right, for African-Americans. Because my grandfather was in the police force at a time where they had to walk their beats. They couldn't get back up. They couldn't get promotions. So I remember her telling me lots of stories when I was sitting in her living room and she'd pull out books and, you know, all these things that she had been involved in. 
And she said, you know, I had a sit-in at Mayor so-and-so, Mayor <laughs> Crozier's office, and I told them they're going to give those police back up, and she didn't take no for an answer. So she was instrumental, even though she wasn't known nationwide or, you know. But it is the grassroots that made it all happen. It's the grassroots. Now, where I was embarrassed is because I didn't understand it. So, you know, in my young child world, again, very diverse community, I'm not really understanding racism at that time. I'm playing with my white friends and my Asian friends in school. They're just your friends. They're just my friends. And then I'm coming home and I'm like, why does she have a picket today? Or what? Like, what? what is this for? Yeah. Not that I'm going to say that I didn't experience some racism, but I just didn't know what it was. Yeah. I didn't know what to like call it. And so it was funny because I was in SGA and everyone in the community that had issues of injustice, they would call my grandmother. That's what she did full time after she had retired. From what was your grandmother's family. name? Virginia Hatcher. It was Mary Virginia Sims Hatcher. She was a missionary as well. So very involved in her faith. But I was in the student government and this is when it dawned on me that like I was going to follow in my grandmother's footsteps. She was outside of the university with her coalition commission on race and religion. She was also NAACP president. They had a picket line in front of the university because a lot of the black faculty felt that they were not getting the tenure. I'm in college. I'm in student government. So I'm representing the university, right? And here's your grandmother on the other side. Yeah. And she calls me and she says, hey, I need you out here at whatever time. And I said, Granny, I can't do that. I'm in student government. And she said, I don't care what you're in. She said, if you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. And I still, at that point, I kind of knew what that meant, but I really hadn't truly lived it out because, you know, I'm a college student yeah. at this time. I'm having a good time. You're right. You know? And so I showed up after the picket was over to help them put signs. But I, I don't walk in that kind of fear as far as getting in trouble or anything like that because I've lived now and I've experienced things and I know how to navigate. But at that point in my life, I just had not really didn't have the deep understanding did your grandmother accept the fact that you came afterwards? It's kind of a compromise or did she say anything to you? Like, she did. I really wanted she you just, to be here. Yeah, she did. She was yeah. like, you got to show up to these things. You got to let people know you mean business. So we are very similar in our thinking, but our styles are different. I like to have sit down one-on-one -on -one meetings for those hard conversations. I could in my role probably be on TV every day yeah. talking about issues of injustice, but the Urban League, we're unique in that we help to solve these challenges by direct program services, by putting out reports and data like State of Black Chattanooga, right? So I really think of things from the perspective of what does the data say? How do we have conversations to understand the data about these disparities? And then what's some of the resolve? And so I've just been conditioned, and I think that's through kind of my college experience and learning how to you know, have civil discourse and taking public administration courses, being on the city council, also working for government, it makes me approach advocacy from a different approach than maybe my grandmother's generation. Although there is a need for that. There is a need for those pickets and those grassroots, you know, advocacy. I just think from the seat that I sit in, I have to do it in a way that I can actually get some results. Well, it sounds like you understand how the internal workings of the system are and where those levers are and where you can get results. Yeah. It sounds like your grandmother was obviously a tremendous influence on you. 
that incident with the picket line in Austin P. What did you take forward on that as a lesson? You have to stand up for what you believe in, but you can do it your way. Like there's not one way because people will criticize you no matter what way you do it. People criticize my grandmother. People criticize me when I, you know, didn't come to the picket line. Mm -hmm. Right. But as long as you have the right heart and you still speak up about it, it's okay to do it your way. Like there's no one way for advocacy. There are many ways to do that. Just advocate. Just advocate. Speak truth. Right. Don't walk in fear. Because if you're going in it with the right mindset and the right heart to achieve whatever that stated goal is, which in our case is equity, mm -hmm. then it's going to be okay. Like everything's going to work out the way that it should work out. I want to get a little ahead here and get you to Chattanooga so we can talk about the Urban League. What brought you to Chattanooga? And if you would just explain for the audience who don't know who your husband is and how that contributed to getting you to Chattanooga. Yeah. So... My husband being selected for superintendent of schools brought me to Chattanooga. I never thought about moving from Clarksville, although I was working in Nashville, a commuter like many people in Clarksville. My goal was to be mayor of Clarksville. That was my next step. My mentor, Joe Pitts, who was a state legislator for probably 12 years, is now the mayor there. And at that time, I was talking to him like right before our move, like right before we knew he was going to come here about putting my bid in to run a mayoral campaign, and he was going to be completely supportive. And then when I left, he ran. So I'm glad he stepped <laughs> yeah. up because we're getting the type of leadership in my hometown that we need for that positive and inclusive growth. And so, you know, that was part of it. But I was also working in the chamber as the director of policy. In the Nashville chamber. The Nashville chamber. And my boss was looking at me becoming potentially chief of mm -hmm. policy at some point as he was going to transition out. So I had a lot career wise on the line for where I could go, where I could take that career. And then moving here to Chattanooga, it was like a culture shock, number one. And number two, I didn't feel like I had a place. Yeah. You were so ingrained in, in Clarksville. And, and Nashville. And Nashville. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you come to Chattanooga. Talk about the culture shock. Yeah, of course, the realtor is going to show you, especially for a superintendent, certain areas are like, oh, Signal Mountain over here, East Brainerd. I don't think it, maybe North Chat wasn't such a big deal. Maybe it was kind of being revitalized. So those were the areas our realtor kind of took us to. I guess they had a mindset of like, this is where the type of neighborhood you have to live in. Us not really knowing much, we selected a neighborhood that we liked because there was a path to walk to the elementary school. And have had to walk to the high school. We had a junior yeah. in high school and a kindergartner. And being able to walk to school is great. Yes. And so that was Emerald Valley. Very nice gated neighborhood. And so we found something. I didn't necessarily like the house, but I was like, it's about the kids, right? Being able to have that accessibility for that community school feel. And so we moved there. And at that time, my son was the only African-American young boy in the neighborhood. Wow. So, you know, we never really talked about race with them yeah. at that age. I mean, because, again, we didn't have to have that conversation. We had to start having the conversation when we moved here because that's when it became very different. It was like his best friend was Indian in our neighborhood in, in Clarksville, and there were white kids and black kids. And, you know, we just didn't. We didn't have the diversity to offer Yeah, in a neighborhood. Absolutely. Bingo. And so you couldn't really find this black middle class 
neighborhood where it was primarily diverse. So you were either really, really, you know, impoverished neighborhood where the majority of the black families were, or you were very affluent or, you know, upper middle class because affordability of the houses. And you know that communities, the schools are reflective of the communities that are built around them. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, well, this school doesn't have this and this, well, I mean, look at the neighborhoods, yeah. look how we built the neighborhoods and look how we built our, our community. So that was interesting. So that was the culture shock. Great neighbors, great relationships with our neighbors. And so I did start to notice that my son was becoming embarrassed about his culture. I mean, if I would cook certain things like turnip greens and like if he would eat on the porch, like back in Clarksville here, he would be embarrassed to take his food. I'd be like, son, take your food. Like you can eat your food and walk. And he would not. And I noticed that he would start acting differently. And so I told my husband and my husband was on the tail end of kind of like the first term mm -hmm. of his superintendency. I said, you know, our daughter's graduated. He's going to, I think he was going to third grade. I said, we really need to find something for him where he can see himself. Because he was trying to fit in with all of his friends. He was trying to fit in. And it would have been okay if it wasn't, based on cultural differences. Like it, it started my heart just no, saying. I had to break. And I'm like, it's okay to be like who you are. Like you don't have to try to, but it, I had never seen that in his behavior. Yeah. And so we sold our home. Did you really? To live in a more diverse community. And we, it was an older community and it was in Highway 58 side of town. You can't think of the neighborhood, beautiful neighborhood, older, more established neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had neighbors of all different backgrounds in the whole cul-de-sac. They had no kids. Yeah. My favorite house in Chattanooga. We don't live there anymore, but amazing neighborhood. Oh, all of our neighbors were nice. They were all different backgrounds, but they were all retired. Yeah. There are no kids for him to play with. That's and hard, too. I was like, okay, well, he went to a more diverse school, but it was a, had just kind of merged. So it was the brand new Harrison. The first day of class, it dawned on me that we needed to talk about culture and race. He was third grade. The first day of school, we dropped him off, and he came out of the building. He was so excited. And he said, Mom, there are boys that look just like me in Miss So-and-So's class, a lot of them. Wow. I didn't grow up thinking like yeah. that. In 2023, it's still amazing that you hear that. Yeah, and again, this wasn't a conversation that we, we didn't talk about race. So it's like for him to just say that on his own without being prompted, because he wasn't in those discussions about why are we moving? I mean, you know, he's a kid. Yeah. And so he went to that school. I think the school had its challenges merging other schools from other cultures, and they were dealing with some situations. And I thought, you know, he's used to this kind of environment. He's probably not going to adjust well to this type of environment until they get it figured out at this school. And my husband had left superintendency during that time. So it just wasn't a good fit yeah. for him until the school actually had time to learn how to work through some of their, you know, they had kind of rural poverty, some middle class, and then the original Harrison kids that were there. I forgot the schools that all became one. So there, there were some challenges with, you know, teacher management and that sort of thing. So I just thought, you know, my kid can't be the guinea pig. We got to go back. So we sold that house. And moved back to our old neighborhood. Oh, wow. But I would say that the move and being away for one year 
allowed him to see himself, right, to be okay with his culture and to not shy away from who he is. And it really changed him. Yeah. So now he can go anywhere and just be himself. He feels comfortable. That's why representation is so important, not just in schools and, you know, educators. And we wrote about that in our State of Black Chattanooga report, but also in workplaces. And then learning how to manage that diversity because there is a management piece to diverse. And I'm talking about intergenerational, gender, like all mm-hmm. of those different layers of diversity. There is a management to that because we have differences. Yeah, absolutely. You were very active in Clarksville and you've been very active here. Touch on some of the things you've done here and, and then let's talk about the Urban League specifically. And I want to get to the state of Black Chattanooga report. Yeah. So came to Chattanooga and as I mentioned, I didn't really have a job lined up or any leads on anything. So I just started consulting right off the bat. Did a couple of projects here with some nonprofits and helping them to think through whether it was problem. Actually, I got a contract with the Urban League in 2018 with Mr. Logan, my predecessor. I loved Warren. Oh, everybody. What loves a great Warren. guy. Oh my God. I think about him all the time. But he hired me to build out a parent advocacy workshop that then ended up getting implemented for the learning communities. I didn't teach it. I actually built it. Mm -hmm. It was teaching parents about advocating for your kids, but also policies. That's how I, one of my consulting projects was the Urban League. So that was my start. Got to open that door. Yeah, it opened the door and didn't think anything about it after that. And then he brought me back to be the lead evaluator on the Inclusion by Design, the Executive Leadership Development Program. So that was my two big projects. But outside of that, of course... Everybody finds out about my background. It's like, hey, will you serve on this board? Will you speak here? Will you serve on this? Will you? So I ended up getting on like five boards. And I think we worked at YCAP together yep. because you and your wife used to feed the kids yep. for YCAP. And that's where we met. But yeah, so served on the YCAP board, the aquarium board, which I am still on. Are you? I asked Val the other day. I said, didn't it my time to roll off? <laughs> but that's one board. They wouldn't let me leave. Good board to be on. It is a great board. And we do a lot of great things with economic development and helping the youth yeah. and all that. So I still serve on quite a few local and state boards here. Do you sleep? <laughs> Actually, going back to my college days, I think I kind of operate in the same fashion. Like I do sleep, but I'm usually up at like, you know, 12 or maybe 2 a.m. sometimes. Not as much. Yeah. I do try to sleep more. You must have a very active mind. Yeah, I can't turn it off a lot of times. Yeah. Unfortunately, I try. I hear that from my wife quite a bit, too. You know, it's like, I just can't turn it off. Yeah, you try. So, yeah. you know, because people look at it as stress or they worry about you. And I'm like, Man, I've been living this way since I was, yeah. you know, high school. It's just how you are. It's a gift, really. So obviously with your background and the variety of things you've done, it makes you an ideal candidate for the Urban League. What attracted you to that position and how did all that come about? Well, at first I wasn't really attracted to it. I enjoyed what the Urban League stood for and I enjoyed my consulting projects. And Mr. Logan called me, said, hey, I'm about to retire, which you know he was ill. And he said, I think you ought to consider putting your name in the hat. It was totally unexpected because I was working for the mayor's office at that time. I mean, we were dealing with everything with COVID. So I was exhausted, yeah. like mitigating the spread of the virus, getting vaccines out. I mean, we were meeting around the clock, closing down uh, businesses, looking at different policies. And I was leading for the mayor's team at that time, something called the Economic Recovery Alliance, which was a group of community leaders that I would convene. And we met for six months, had a Bloomberg Associates kind of consultant that we worked with. 
to plan for what does economic inclusion look like post-pandemic? So that's what I was spending my time working mm-hmm. on. So after that, I was already planning after the mayor's administration to go back home to start my consulting business again and just do that full time, yeah. spend more time with my son and the family. And I get this phone call and I told Mr. Logan, I said, I really appreciate you thinking of me, but I am not interested. I am exhausted <laughs> with COVID. I think everybody was exhausted. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, I really think you should think about it. And if anybody knew Mr. Logan, I mean, he was a devout Christian. And he, when he called me the second time, he said, let's have a word of prayer. And we prayed on the phone. Tears were rolling oh. down my eyes. And I just felt, okay, Lord, you're calling me to this work. So for me, it is ministry. Yeah, It really is. I mean, I'm not talking about proselytizing, but you know, ministry to me is action. So when you think about the mission, empowering lives, changing communities, that's what I was working to do my entire life. Yeah. Why I wanted to go to law school, why I wanted to, I didn't know that I wanted to follow in my mother's and grandmother's footsteps, but I think that's what I was being built for. Well, everything prepared you for that. And being able to look back is a lot easier than when you're in the middle of it. But just looking back, it seems every step. It seems like it was all aligned. Yeah. I mean, even my college major, my relationship with Joe Pitts, my childhood. I think I was telling you before we hopped on this morning, I said, yeah, I've been in nonprofit since I was nine years old. You know, started a boys and girls club. I didn't know that was a real nonprofit because I'm nine. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going around knocking on doors, living in my community that was blighted, except for our street. Our street, Poston Street, was pretty well kept. It was like a working class. And then down the street from us, it was like that's where you saw all the slumlords having properties and still some original owners, but it had started to become blighted. And so I was fundraising because there were kids in my neighborhood who couldn't, like my mother worked civil service and she was a beautician part-time. So she would go to her Fort Campbell job and then come home and do hair in the afternoon. So we were not poor, but we were like the least poor, like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I could do things like I could go to the skating ring. I could order pizza, but my friends could not. So I thought, how do I get them to be involved and experience what I can experience? And so that's why we started our fundraiser where we would knock on doors in the neighborhood and say, would you like to donate to the boys and girls club? And we were the boys and girls, (laughs) but I didn't know that was a real nonprofit. So that's my fundraising. That's great. But anyways, going back to the urban league. So it was a calling. And it was something that I was passionate about. I just knew the climate in Chattanooga was such that I had watched what my husband had gone through with racism that the public probably didn't see, but the emails that he would get or the things that he would go through here. And I was like, this is going to be a heavy lift. And I knew the organization didn't have kind of the resources. It was Mm under-resourced. I think it was like one point for 1.7 million. And most of that was like a large government grant that was going to be expiring. So I knew what the financials were because I had done the research and I thought this is going to be a restart. Yeah. So I knew it would be like a startup business and I'm like, okay, am I ready for this? And I knew the politics of Mr. Logan had been there 25 years. I'm sure there were people lined up wanting to be the CEO and I didn't want to compete with that because all I want to do is serve. Right. Like I don't want the noise. I don't want the the politics that, you know, having with those types of jobs, I just wanted to be. And I knew that walking into this, it was going to be that pressure of like, okay, well, what's the Urban League going to do now? And so I spent my first year really assessing things and telling a lot of people, no, 
which I'm sure that probably rubbed people the wrong way. Like, oh, the Urban League doesn't want to partner. But how can you partner when you don't have the infrastructure to be a quality partner? And I spent a lot of time when I worked for seven years at the Clarksville Montgomery County School System as the community relations director and also the foundation director of the school's foundation teaching about quality partnerships. So shame on me if I was going to sign up to be in a meeting or to be a part of something when I knew that we didn't have the capacity or the infrastructure to be quality partners. But I think people has been so used to the Urban League coming to the table and checking the box just to say they were there to check that diversity box. And so when I started telling people, oh, no, we're not going to be a part of that because I needed time to learn what we had and then to build based on the community needs, which is or the needs of the black community specifically. And of course we serve other minorities and women and we don't turn people away. So if white men show up, yeah, you can come and be a part of the urban league movement. So the urban league is for the community. It's about changing the DNA and the perspective that people of color can thrive here. I want to be an example and it shouldn't just be transplants. It shouldn't just be blacks or other minorities that come here they thrive, and then our native Chattanoogans don't get that opportunity to thrive or to be in position. So that's what the Urban League is about, is bringing all that together so that we can achieve economic self-reliance for those who are struggling and maybe not have credentials or that college education or a living wage job, above living wage job, that economic self-reliance, parity, power, and civil rights. And when you think about that word power in our mission, that's the power to choose Mm -hmm. the life you want to live, the power to own a home, right? We know there's power in owning land, right? The power to start a business, right? The power to choose. And so that power piece is big to me, which is why we started three empowerment centers. So that was part of my year of like rebuilding. And then that second year, I'm getting ready to be in the January. It'll be my three-year anniversary. So first year really figured out infrastructure, had no HR. Like Mm -hmm. I was HR. I was the graphic designer. I was website. I had an executive assistant who was, you were like an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Starting your own business. It was running a business. Yeah. It's still running a business, the business of serving people. Question for you on, you mentioned it shouldn't just be transplants in your opinion or what you've seen is equity driven mainly by people who move here than the folks who have been here a long time, just due to acceptance. I think it's starting to shift Mm -hmm. um, that natives are starting to get more opportunities to serve in leadership roles, board roles. But I worked with Wade Hint a lot. Mm -hmm. I did some consulting with him and worked on some projects. And we had coined the Faithful 15. Like you knew the 15 black people that served on every single board and about 75% of them were transplants. They were not from Chattanooga. So we've seen that number grow as far as having the opportunity to serve, but you cannot point to large-scale Black economic success here in Chattanooga. Where is it? If you go downtown, and, you know, downtown is a lot of times the first place you visit, where would you point to large-scale Black economic success? That's a tough question. So that's why the Urban League wanted to have this place-based strategy when we purchased our building for the first time, never owned any capital. Like, we never had that. It's to be a pillar of hope mm-hmm. that you can have economic success. And so we're trying to drive that. And that's why I say economic inclusion is a big focus for us. And it's not just by example, it's making opportunities too. Absolutely. So we have probably too many programs to name, but you can visit our website. So a couple more questions. What's your vision for the Urban League in the next couple of years? To increase the power 
to be able to give more back to the community. And by increasing the power, we have to increase our assets. We have to increase the social capital of those who are connected with us, who want to see a better Chattanooga where everyone can thrive. And so we need to be a $10 million organization. I mean, we went from 1.7 to six, almost 6 million. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. So within this two year time frame, but you have to do more of it. Right. And we're a small organization, still relatively smaller than a lot of urban leagues our size. But I think in order to be able to achieve the goals of this parity power and civil rights for people of color in large scale economic success, we're going to have to increase our resources to be able to reinvest back into the community. Last question for you. Think back to your 25 year old self. What would you tell yourself is important for a happy life? I would tell myself some advice that I received from someone who is 80 years old. Don't take yourself too seriously. Cause I'm a very serious person. And so I need to have more fun. Like being serious for me is fun. Yeah, It's like getting things done, like achieving things for the greater good of others is fun to me. And some people think that's odd. They're like, no, you should, what's your hobby? What's your... So I have along the way just adopted cooking. Like cooking is my passion. What do you like to cook? Everything from Asian food to Middle Eastern food to Mexican food is what I cook the most of. What's your signature dish? Oh, everything. <laughs> no, I would say I can make tamales. Oh, I which love tamales. Is the holidays. Yeah. It is a, takes a long time. When I make some, I'll bring them. Yeah. I'm going to hold you to it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to make some. They do take a while. But yeah, so not taking myself too seriously. I'm a very serious person. Yeah. But I know what you mean there. You're serious and you want to get things done, but there's a time you just need to sit back and enjoy life. Yeah. And that's where I'm at right now. You're having a great impact. I really appreciate you coming in and talk to us today and look forward to having you back. I enjoyed it. Thank you for what you do in getting these stories out there because there are lots of perceptions. When I think you having this show, it opens up, you know, who people really are. How did they get to where they are now? And I think that's important for people to see. Well, thank you. I enjoy doing it. And thank you for being here, Candy. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.